0: Tiki, 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 tiki room. In the
1: Good day out there in Netcast land. I am Rod O'Reilly. And I'm Mark Merlino. And we are collectively known as... Two old, old Furry Fans. fans. Welcome back once again to our little uh, rundown of our experience having been in furry fandom for a long time, kids. And once again, thank you very much to our buddy Lion for getting all of this put up online successfully. And thank you all very much, those of you who have tuned in so far to where we've been on down the road. If you like what you've been seeing, feel free to tip. Help us keep doing what we've been doing. So uh, we've been kind of bouncing along through the years, uh, the start of how these two interesting guys from California got into this thing known as furry fandom and uh, discovered what it was around them. And Cy, you had uh, mentioned that there were a couple of interesting things specifically about Disneyland that uh, you wanted to uh, mention around this time.
2: Yes, besides the, uh, the television shows and the movies. Right. There were things happening at the park right. that really intrigued me. One of them was uh, the uh, Enchanted Tiki Room. Now, that actually goes way back to 1963. Right. They,
1: they were doing open. a lot of uh, stuff right around then to uh, upgrade the park and so forth. They had,
2: But that's... all of the performers were birds and flowers and tiki
1: gods and stuff, all anthropomorphic. Am I right that that was the first thing that actually had what they called... Audio animatronics
2: Yes, uh, basically that was that predated the 64 Worlds Fair. right where they had Mr. Lincoln and it's a small world and it's a small world, right. And actually the tiki room birds were much more complex than small world. Right, right. Besides having the beak movement, they
1: had the head movement, the eyes blinked, the chest would fluff singing in time to the music. For those of uh, the young folk out there who may not know what the heck these guys are carrying on about why don't we tell them what audio animatronics is? Okay
2: um, part of the the Disney Imagineering team that went on, they originally had developed animals for the attractions at Disneyland, particularly Jungle Cruise along Rivers of America, things like that. They had uh, mainly taxidermy models but they would put mechanisms in them to move their heads maybe blink their eyes servo motors yeah and they came up with the idea of why not have a performing being you know human or otherwise where the control of the actuators and the mechanics were done by audio so essentially the mouth movements would be controlled by the audio track, but you could also put all the other movements that the character was doing on the tape with the audio track. Which makes syncing the whole thing to music very, very easy. So what they did, for example, for Mr. Lincoln's speech, is they actually had a uh, rig that the person would wear, which later got termed Waldo from um, science fiction story. Right. By Harlan Ellison. And the person would wear this thing with uh, arms and, and sensors all over him. And then he could stand up and turn his head and look up and look down. And they actually didn't have actuators small enough for, like, facial movements back then. Right. So it was the bodily movements that would happen. Like Lincoln standing up and holding his note in his hand, folding his arms, things like that.
1: Right. But they did have the jaw. Yeah. The and jaw was large enough they could get away with it.
2: Then they would play the speech. The guy would go through all the facial and, uh, you know, movements, and they would record all of that onto a tape. Right. And then when they played the tape back, those movements would be copied, you know, synchronized. Yeah. So the thing about the Tiki Room, of course, is you had probably a hundred different animatronic things all singing, moving to the tape. And it was essentially one big half, it was a half-inch, I think, 24-track high-speed tape like they use in recording studios. They
1: did that with only 24 tracks?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of the movements are copied. You know, all of the flowers in each of the, the four hanging baskets. Right. We're doing the same
1: movements. True, true. You could kind of but um, still that's an off if you think about it, that's an awful lot.
2: Yeah. But um that was why they got the term audio animatronic. So it's, right. you know, audio animation and it's electronic. Very cool. Also they used air. It wasn't just electronic. A lot of times they actually used air cylinders to Really to make to move. And if you were going to the tiki room in the old days Sometimes during scenes where there was a lot of action, you could actually hear the hiss of the air valves underneath the music
1: Ah, and sound effects. For like the tiki gods singing on the walls, probably, and stuff like that. That would make sense to do that hydraulically. Now I was into
2: music and into Disney when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I actually had... A little reel-to-reel stereo reel-to-reel recorder that I'd gotten for Christmas it was made by Iowa, uh-huh. And it uh, it had uh, five-inch reels, and it was about the size of a small briefcase. Okay. And one of the first things I did with it was I took it to the tiki room, and I put it behind my back, and I had my mom hold one of the microphones and I held the other, and I taped. <laughs> The Tiki Room. You criminal, you. Um, Years later, they brought out a record. Right, right. But I listened to that tape hundreds of times.
1: Yeah, one of the things that it took Disney a little while to catch on to was the concept of soundtrack albums for their attractions.
2: Yeah, for the attractions. Although, interestingly enough, Disney invented the soundtrack album. Really? A lot of people don't realize this. Besides long classical pieces, uh-huh. which came on 78s in albums, right? the first motion picture soundtrack that you could buy as an album was for Sleeping Beauty. I'm, I'm sorry, it was for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. It was, I think, five discs. Wow. Shellac 78 discs in like a, a binder. Wow. With a slipcase, so it looked like a book. Huh.
1: And, of course, um, what uh, when I first started becoming more aware of Disney in the early 70s, here we are back in the early 70s again, one of the first things I remember seeing uh, was TV commercials when they opened up the Country Bear Jamboree, and later on for the American Bicentennial, they opened up America Sings in what had been previously been the uh, Carousel of Progress. And, of course, those were even more anthropomorphic, more different species involved. And I saw those on television and then I said, Mom!
2: <laughs> yeah, well, Country Bear Jamboree was, of course, in what became Critter Country. Right. And uh, it was kind of the, the, the premiere of that. Right. And that happened in in seventy one, actually. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's I didn't when it opened. It went back
1: that far.
2: And America Sings was actually seventy four. Oh, okay. Well, it was it was made in anticipation of yeah. the. Uh, and of course, there were a lot of different species in America Sings. Yes. Besides, yes. Besides, you know, Sam the Eagle, uh, and the little weasel in his hat. Mm-hmm. There were rabbits, and cranes, and. Foxes and of and course wolves
1: and of course in the country bear jamboree even there was more than just bears they had extra you know critters helping them out and of course they had the three heads on the wall right um, and if we're going to talk about those two, we have got to make mention of mr. Mark Davis right. Uh, who uh, if you don't know that name he was one of Disney's nine old men and uh, they recently came out with a book about him called Disney's Renaissance Man because the guy could literally do anything he was an animator he designed backgrounds he was a character designer and he did a lot of designs for Disney attractions including you can thank him for all of the characters in Country Bear Jamboree and America Sings (laughs)
2: Yeah, and I think he was the designer of the characters in Robin Hood.
1: Um, and that other guy you mentioned quite often also, Ken... Ken Anderson. Yes, Ken Anderson. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. He, he, he was heavily involved with uh, the design. So as you can tell, there was kind of a look to Disney at the time in the late 60s and early 70s, which you can largely thank to the Nine Old Men uh, and uh, some of the, uh, I forget, I think it was called the 12 middle-aged men who came in after them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that sort of set what became known as the Disney style at the time. Yeah. Which is something that furry fans should really be aware of because almost subconsciously when furry fandom got up and rolling, you know, a decade or so later, I think a lot of early furry fandom artists really had that Disney style embedded in their brain. So it kind of became like the touchstone, I think, where a lot of what we think of as furry art style came from. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh yeah. So speaking of the early 70s, which is where we uh, left off last time, we had pretty much finished off with uh, Robin Hood. But before we got too far away from that, I wanted to uh, talk a quick bit about uh, 1974, uh, since you mentioned uh, that for America Sings. Uh, Right around 1973, on CBS, there premiered a TV series based off of the Planet of the Apes series of movies. And I went bananas. Uh, No pun intended. But I just fell in love with that immediately. Um, Even though uh, my my parents had never taken me to see most of the movies in the theaters because they were rather on the violent side. Um, But I found out about them through other ways, and then this TV series comes along, and I just adored it right off the bat. Uh, Another thing that furry fans really ought to check out if you haven't seen it is uh, do some Google searching. We'll put some resources on our site, but go look closely at some of the makeup work for the original Planet of the Apes series of movies and the TV series. For the time, it was absolutely astonishing how much expression they could get out of what was basically this pile of latex on the front of a person's face. Um, they practically gave them muzzles, and it worked. Um, the, and uh, the actors, especially uh, Roddy McDowell and uh, Kim Hunter, who played uh, Zira in the, in the movies, Just the expressions they got out of all of this was amazing. But they had lots and lots and lots of people in in ape makeup. And you really wouldn't believe how much expression they could get out of all of that for the time. The reason I bring this up is because in 1974, pardon me, 1970, yes, 1974, um, my father moved us to yet another horse ranch up in Northern California in beautiful San Miguel Uh, north of Paso Robles, north of uh, San Luis Obispo. So, you know, the boonies. And one of the things that was special about that particular place is it was nestled in between a bunch of mountains and you could not get in CBS, period. Literally the only station that you could get in for the year that we lived there was NBC, so, I was rather miffed at my parents for taking me to a place where I could not watch uh, the Planet of the Apes TV series. So, uh, that that, that, hurt. that hurt me to my soul. But, uh, I must say that one of the things that was cool was they could get in NBC. And in 1974, NBC had at least two really awesome things, particularly for furry fans or science fiction fans in general, actually. Um, One of them was The Land of the Lost, a TV series by good old Sid and Marty Croft. We mentioned them before with H.R. Puffin Stuff. And, uh, you know, H.R. Puffin Stuff was them doing, you know, psychedelic fantasy. This was (laughs) Sid and Marty Croft doing science fiction. And I'm not sure who won. (laughs) It's just so hard to describe that show because it, it went so far all over the place. Just, you know, a family falls into another dimension. That's the basics of it. But beyond that, it just went crazy with all these different science fiction concepts coming in from all these different angles. And the goofy thing is, is that I found out in years later is that there were, on the one hand, a great many well-known science fiction authors who worked on that series, including David Gerald. And uh, Larry Niven wrote scripts for uh, Land of the Lost back in the day. And also, most of the uh, staff of Star Trek, meaning the stars and stuff like that, and some of the uh, producers and things like that, also worked on Land of the Lost as writers. And they they didn't appear on camera, but they were writers and producers and stuff like that. Uh, People like Walter Koenig and uh, D.C. Fontana and, again, David Gerald, and all these people. So it was just this incredible brain trust. So uh, that made Saturday mornings really interesting.
2: Yeah, well, actually, I run across other furry fans our age that Mm -hmm. were really, you know, intrigued and really inspired by Land of the Lost. Right. Yeah, but the interesting thing is, of course. Then we had the animated Star Trek.
1: Yep, which all the Star Trek fans went bananas about because, specifically, it was the first new Star Trek that we'd seen since it went off the air. And even though it was a cartoon, and even though it was a filmation cartoon, you know, it was new Star Trek episodes with brand-new writers and all this routine, and they just glommed onto it. And for us, so I can say for me, of course, one of the things that was awesome about it was the uh, animation freed them up from makeup budgets so they could get a lot more interesting with the aliens than they could ever afford to get in the TV series where it was mostly what the makeup budget could afford. The animation, you could do whatever you could think of. And so you wound up not only with more interesting aliens that they ran into on the planets, but you actually had alien aliens on board the Enterprise as crew.
2: Yeah, not just the Vulcan.
1: Yeah, not just the Vulcan. Not you just pointy ears and uh, uh, or, know, or or dark skin. In fact, you had Moress. Uh, yes, there was a communications officer known as Lieutenant Moress, who was a feline. Uh, boy, was she! And um, she didn't appear in a lot, but my gosh, I think she caught everyone's nose. Uh, whenever she showed up. And she actually had a few lines. She was voiced by Majel Barrett, who was, of course, best known as the voice of the computer, but she was also uh, Gene Roddenberry's wife.
2: Yeah. Wasn't she also a yeoman first season?
1: I think she, she, she paid a yeoman uh, in a couple of places, yeah. yes. And then, and, of um, course, in uh, la- later years in Star Trek Next Generation, she was Deanna Troy's mother.
2: And there was also Erics, which nobody seems to remember.
1: I remember Erics. Erics was an interesting three-legged guy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but they had several um, several aliens. Now, here's, here's a little did you know about uh, this, the animated Star Trek. Of course, they actually had uh, several of the voice actors performing their uh, original roles. They had William Shatner, they had Leonard Nimoy, uh, they had George Takei, and several other people, but Literally, I am not kidding you, 75% of the voices in that series were voiced by Jimmy Dewan, right, which was Mr. S- Mr. Scott. Yeah. you don't realize it listening to it, but then you 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 look back and you you see the list and literally just about anything that wasn't specifically one of the Star Trek stars was Jimmy Dewan, including Erics. He was Erics, so. It became almost a tradition for
2: well-known actors, usually in science fiction shows, to become voice actors in animation. Yes. That might have been the start of it, but it kept going. Mm-hmm.
1: And the, 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 what's awesome about the, the Star Trek thing is that um, the character designs, that's always been a thing about filmation, is yes, you know, the it's stiff. 70s limited animation; it hardly moves. But if you see the character design sheets, it's like, oh my gosh, they're gorgeous. It's too bad they didn't do more with them in terms of motion. But you know, just looking at the character, they're, they're very memorable. And you introduced me shortly after I met you. You introduced me to something totally unique, which I thought was awesome, which was a fanzine called Future Wings. Which, uh, I, I swear, you, you, don't even try to Google it or, or wiki it. You'll never find it, folks. I've tried. But uh, Future Wings was an a, adult-oriented Star Trek fanzine created, written, and produced entirely by active service members of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Which was one unique thing about it. But the other unique thing about it was it was the only Star Trek fanzine, adult or otherwise, that I've ever seen that was specifically based off of the animated, animated Star, Star Trek.
2: Trek. And the main characters in it were actually characters from an episode mm-hmm. that were Avian. Yes. the Which uh, I think were based on science fiction book by
1: Niven, was it? I'm not sure. They were kind of griffinoid things. And uh, they played a very big part in a very cool episode of uh, Star Trek. But, uh, yeah, they were a major part, but also all of the, you know, Maress was a major part. Eric's was a major part. And then uh, the uh, the creators, the writers, made up all of these Mary Lou characters for themselves. Right. And they also uh, took their pets and made them anthropomorphic aliens and put them in the stories also. Right. So.
2: You yeah, it's one one thing you have to be aware of is that publications that became a big thing in furry before the internet. Yes. There were fanzines, and actually Future Wings was what would be called a genzine. Right. Indicating that it was not just a... Collaborate just not just a collection of reviews and comments and, and things about other work. It was a collection of fan-created work, which basically fan fiction. Right, which is fan interesting.
1: F- I think back then
2: I don't think they had the term fanfic. Um, not as such. Right. But I ran across another Gen Zine that is probably one of the best things I ever stumbled across. Oh, yes. Author named Angie Valenza, Mm -hmm. who lived in in, uh, Brooklyn, New York, and had a horse Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn, New York, (laughs) which to this day, I still can't figure out how she managed that, uh, created a, a universe of basically alien automatons. Essentially, it was, you know, every... The theory here was every sentient race eventually wanted to explore space, got to the point where technologically they could create intelligent AI, basically space probes, Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't have to send their kind into space. Right. And had been doing this for a very long time. And eventually these probes, which usually could, you know, they had essentially unlimited fuel, they were self-repairing, would go farther and farther afield. And a lot of them, because they were AIs, got to thinking, you know, my prime directive is to explore, so I'm going to explore. I'm just going to keep exploring. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them never went back to their home worlds. But they eventually found each other. And some were were gregarious. Mm Mm-hmm. And basically, they had different traits, different designs, they could do different things, and they formed their own little society.
1: Now, she, Angie, did not invent the concept of a brain ship, an AI ship, but I think she was one of the first people to come up with the idea of a brain ship having a mobile unit that was yeah. like usually a, a biped of some sort or sometimes a quadruped of some sort that was, you know, another android-type thing that was... It it shared the same brain with the ship, but it could, you know, go walking out of places. Right. It was
2: essentially the ship in a different form. Right. The ship could be one place. It could be another.
1: Right. It was a remote unit. And... I think she came up with that.
2: She eventually... One of these exploration units got to the moon of Earth, Mm -hmm. which had a small city on it. And that being ran into one of Earth's very first AI astronauts, I guess you could call it, because it was humanoid form. And a little story she wrote called Snow on the Moon, Mm -hmm. which I still consider possibly one of the greatest science fiction stories I've ever read. It's not really hard SF. Pretty close. It it's, has a lot of that to it, but it's a story. It The the characters, the relationship is the main thing about the story.
1: Absolutely. Now, uh, for people who at this point are running over to Wikipedia trying to look this stuff up, you should probably go into this person's new name.
2: Yeah. Basically, the character she created, which was kind of her Mary Sue, was one of these probe Creatures that had been constructed and then given artificial intelligence by this little society. And what they did is they modeled a creature from the planet they put their colony on called the Cetamurai, which is kind of like a, almost a baboon cat kind of combination. Except that it's an amphibian. Yeah. (laughs) And. um, Read the
1: story. It makes sense.
2: That creature's name was Farah Mar and Angie eventually got married to someone named Bob Shimbo. So she started calling herself Farah Shimbo. F-A-R-A-S-H-I-M-B-O She has a Facebook page.
1: But she eventually shortened it to Fa Shimbo.
2: Yeah, Fa Shimbo. Yeah. And um, as recently as about Five years ago, you could still get her stories in volumes from a very early self-publishing website. Not sure if that's still possible today.
1: We'll research it. Seriously, folks. Um, when I first met up with with Sai, uh, he introduced me to Faw's stuff and Faw's story, and I went crazy. This is such a rich. And well thought out. There's numerous societies in it. They're all thought out, their interactions. It takes place over a long period of time because, of course, they're AI construction. So, you know, what's a century to them? It, it, it's just an amazing scope of science fiction. And it's got lots of, you know, anthropomorphic alien critters and anthropomorphic mechanicals, although they're not C3PO types. They're androids. They're just androids for all these alien things. So you've got this anthropomorphic. Uh, alien critter, and then you've got this robot version of the anthropomorphic alien critter in right. the same story.
2: And in addition to being a world builder and a very good author, she was also a tremendous artist. Yes. And some of the first furry art that I bought at conventions was hers. Mm-hmm. I would actually go to conventions specifically to buy her art there. And I've got a pretty big collection. It was mainly kind of Watercolor and she also used Dr. Martin dyes. So a lot of her stuff was, it was, had a, almost a glow to it. It was very bright.
1: Mm-hmm. A lot of watercolors.
2: Yeah. And she also did some amazing art on vellum. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, the vellum in, back in those days was not acid free. Oh. So most of that art has is, is been deteriorating sadly. Oh. She also did a lot of scratchboard. Oh yes, you don't see a lot of that these days. Scratchboard essentially, you take a a piece of um, paper that has a a chalk like coating on it, and then you cover that with black lacquer. Then you take basically needles mm-hmm. and you scratch the black lacquer away, revealing the white below it, and so you're doing almost a negative.
1: I did of a pencil uh, sketch. For, for art class in high school, I did an assignment of a scratchboard and I scratched the face of a mink. Funny that.
2: So, what she would do is she would do the scratchboard drawing and then, using her Dr. Martin dyes and a very fine brush, she would color it. Ooh. So, you had these vibrant color images on like black, almost like a black velvet painting. Mm hmm. A technique I haven't seen anybody else do.
1: Well, as you said, scratchboard is hard to find these days. So yeah, uh, yeah, Fa Shimbo, Snow on the Moon. Definitely uh, take a look for that, folks. It's easy to find her. Thank goodness. Um, although the original collected book that you have, side that's a rarity from the original fanzines she put out. As you said, her own genzines. So uh, we collected those together and put them in a binder and uh, adore that on our on our shelf. So since we mentioned briefly about um, this, the animated Star Trek, I thought because um, you were already getting into Asifa and doing your show and all of that, so you, you know even better than I, but I was just you know a Saturday morning cartoon fan, but I uh, thought we should talk a little bit about animation in the 70s, particularly television and such, because that's where most of it was. There wasn't an awful lot of animated films at the time. At least not in America. So, you know, we had, you know, the, that, was the, that was the reign of Hanna-Barbera Filmation, Rankin-Bass, and all of those who were just, you know, ruling Saturday morning uh, in the 70s. And you were, you know, already old enough that you were going out and meeting the people who were making the stuff.
2: Right. There wasn't a lot of what you'd consider furry. hmm But there were some interesting shows. There was a show called The Herculoids. Yes. Which was aliens, essentially, and kind of a barbarian a mm-hmm. uh, humanoid. And some of the people that I met, we talked about my art show last time. Right. Which would have been normally in this... In this time period, period. yes. Um, through my connection with Carl Bell, I was introduced to Ron Diaz.
1: Ooh, yes.
2: When I went to UPA to research Gay paris. Hey, who is Ron Diaz? Ron Diaz basically was a background painter and layout artist who had actually worked for Disney as an apprentice, but then went over to UPA. And so he was working on the later stuff at UPA, the later Gerald McBoing-Boings, the later Mr. Magoo's, like Magoo's Christmas Carol. Right. Things like that. He had worked with some of the great background artists at Disney Mm -hmm. and had pretty much become one of the best. He worked, he did work for Hanna-Barbera mainly on their commercials because they had commercial, they had a whole separate commercial studio. Really? So he had beautiful artwork that was used in, you know, Frosted Flakes commercials. Oh, okay, yes.
1: And... uh, Wait a minute, didn't... No, it wasn't Hanna-Barbera that did Captain Crunch. That was... uh, That
2: was Jay Ward. Jay Ward, right. Yeah. And he also did... Yogi Bear was actually used for some product. Right, right. And he did some amazing work for that that was, in a lot of cases, better than the show. (laughs) (laughs) He showed me this beautiful thing he'd done. A lot of times, people in the animation industry in the TV period of time were trying to get the most they could out of a single piece of artwork. Mm-hmm. So he showed me a piece of artwork he had done which had a forest background and was Ranger Smith's office mm-hmm. cabin. But the cabin was the interior ah. sitting. It was basically like someone had taken and cut the building in half. Right. So you have the the forest and the inside of the right of the of the cabin, mm-hmm. and he had an overlay, a cell overlay that laid over it that had the furniture. Okay. of of the cabin. Right. So you could have you could put a character behind the desk. Okay. Or sitting in the chair. Right. And another overlay that was the outside of the cabin. Okay. Painted on the cell. Okay. To match the forest. So you had the outside of the cabin with the front porch. Okay. And so you had essentially one piece of art with these overlays that you could flip up. Right. That they could shoot almost the
1: whole commercial on. Awesome. Now, uh, dragging stuff forward, of course, what I remember Ron Diaz for, as I recall, is eventually he would be the background guy on The Secret of Nim. Yes, jumping ahead a bit there, but we'll get to that in a future episode. But well, just another mention-
2: thing he worked on, which unfortunately, maybe for, for good reason, is faded into oblivion, um, was a film called Metamorphosis. Oh, really? Uh, essentially, Sanrio Corporation, who everybody knows for, like, you know, Hello Kitty nowadays. Yes came to America and said, we want to bankroll an animated feature, but we want it to be as good as anything Disney's ever done. And they particularly emphasized the art. They Mm -hmm. wanted the art to be as good as Disney. They wanted the character designs to be as good as Disney, although they were providing some of the artists. Right. So the character designs were heavily leaning in the direction of manga and anime. No kidding. Which we didn't have a lot of over here at the time. Right. But they hired the best people from all the studios. They hired Willie Ito from Hanna-Barbera. Mm-hmm. They hired Ron Diaz Right. to do backgrounds. And because I knew Ron, he invited me to the studio. And it was interesting because on Hollywood and Vine on one of the corners was an old office building Mm -hmm. that the first floor was Wallach's Music City. Mm -hmm. Now, people don't know what that is. I mean, a lot of people probably don't even know what Tower Records is. But before there were record stores, there were music stores that sold sheet music. Right. And they sold radios, musical instruments, Mm -hmm. and eventually records. Right. And the big chain in California was Wallacks Music City. Interesting. And when that went out of business, I don't know what took the first floor, but the upper floors for a while were Governor Jerry Brown's campaign headquarters. Oh really? The original
1: Yeah.
2: His first time around. And that was the stu- that was the space that Sanrio leased for their studio. Uh huh. So the studio was right there. Okay. In Hollywood, and I would go over and come up the back way, park in the back, and come up the back door to visit Ron, and walk through the studio. Nice. And I've actually got a collection of beautiful cells. Uh huh. That were color models. Essentially, they were cells painted up exactly as they would have been used in the film, but they were character designs that they'd
1: colored to test color. I remember I never got to see Metamorphosis in the theaters, and apparently neither did a bunch of people. But um, I I remember seeing the commercials for it, and it was like, wow. Well,
2: what they decided to do was they were going to do a rock fantasia. Hmm. It was going to be a sequence movie. Yes. With rock music.
1: Hmm. And what was it? The Who? I think. I, I don't remember who did the original. They,
2: they basically approached this band, and after quite a while of working on it, they got essentially like one song <laughs> and a jam, basically. That's all they got. huh. So they had to pad the heck out of it. Right. When they premiered the film in Hollywood, they actually added a tremendous, huge extra sound system. Uh huh, and blasted it. Uh huh, causing most of the reviewers to get up and leave early in the film. <laughs> right. Uh the the eventually, you know, in order to to try to make back some of the money, they never got their their distribution. Oh, to try to make some money back, they recut the film, and since the film had essentially no dialogue at all, mm-hmm. you were just watching the characters go through. The acts of Ovid's Metamorphosis, right? Greatly simplified. Yes. They had Peter Ustinov narrate it, mm-hmm. which didn't work that well.
1: No, not when it's the not when he's the only voice you hear.
2: So essentially, that that movie's around. You can you can look at it.
1: What was the they they did when they did a re-release? They, they recut. They changed the name of it. What was it uh, Winds of Change? No, not Winds of Change. Was, was it Winds of Change? Yes, it was okay. Winds of Change okay um so that the, the, the now there i saw it because it had shown up on uh it, it got kind of played over and over and over again on early hbo in the early 80s
2: now that wasn't particularly furry but of course you have the carrot the, the sequence where the main character changes into a deer and oh, is yes. hunted Mm -hmm. And there
1: are animal characters in it that are kind of on the side. You know what that reminds me of is, you know, speaking of movies that I saw the commercial and went wild over, there was also right about that same time, or maybe a little bit earlier, there was a film made in France known as La Planet Savage, uh, which... uh, Fantastic Planet. Yes, Fantastic Planet, which... I got to admit, when I finally saw it, was a bit of a disappointment because it's kind of slow and ponderous and philosophical and all of that. But man, the commercial they cut for it—it it was just so in your face, psychedelic.
2: At the time it came out, mm-hmm. it got a release to art theaters mm-hmm. and college campuses. <laughs> and there was a theater uh, down in Irvine, at the very end of Harbor Boulevard. Uh, so by South Coast Plaza, actually. Oh yes, I don't know if that was the new art or if it was the mesa. I think it was the mesa. Yeah, it's the mesa. The mesa, and they just showed you know art films and foreign films and such. and yes. I actually went down there with my friends and saw Fantastic Planet on the big screen.
1: Very nice.
2: And it was definitely weird.
1: Yes. It's an interesting science fiction film if you ever get a chance to check it out. Um, as I said, it's very French. And, it's extremely French. Yes. That and should, and kind of should kind tell of, you right there. Kind of slow and ponderous, and they uh, evidently it's one of those ones where they kind of ran out of budget, so the, what was meant to be a half-hour ending sequence winded up being about a 30-second ending sequence. So <laughs> so it's kind of the slow movie, and then it ends. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd definitely check it out. So, while we're plowing on through the 70s, I should make, uh, on a personal note, because as I said, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about us here, people. Um, My parents had moved us up to uh, the middle of uh, California, and in 1975, uh, long story short, my parents decided they didn't like each other much anymore, and um, they got a separation, which eventually became a divorce. Um, again, long story short, because we had lived in Southern California for a period of time shortly after I had been born, when we weren't living in Canada, and, um, this, so my mother had a lot of, uh, people that she knew in the area. She moved down here with my brother and I, and, uh, my dad went off and uh, married his new girlfriend, and they stayed up in, uh, in Northern California. I will say that probably, knowing the stories I've heard from many other people, we probably had a much less painful divorce experience than a lot of kids have had, but uh, it's still not something I would wish on someone I didn't like. But the, the point of all this is, is this got me and my family back down here to Southern California. And man, it's one of those things that just, you know, wow, if, uh, if, if that hadn't happened, all these things, you know, if I'd never gone to Fountain Valley High School, if I had never uh, been in the Fountain Valley High School Science Fiction Club, blotty, 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 Lord only knows where I would be now. I would definitely not be living where I'm living and definitely not have the life mate that I've had for three decades now. Speaking of my life, Nate, you were writing stories <laughs>
2: in the 70s. Yeah, actually I I um I toyed with with stories when I was in uh in high school. I had a friend, uh had a couple of friends. Gordon Stewart was one of my friends and he was a interesting kind of um I guess you'd call him a a kind of a rocker. He was Definitely. very much into rock music. I wasn't.
1: Uh, I liked some of it. Well, he was into a lot of the, you know, jazz rock and progressive rock, Very and electronic, progressive, for the time and uh, just just not 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 standard, you know, top forty uh, rock and roll by anybody. Psychedelia.
2: He loved psychedelia. He yes. really liked it, and he he kind of made it his mission to convince me that this stuff was great. <laughs> so I'd go over to his house. He'd play. You should hear this record. You should hear this record. And he actually started to go to concerts and make bootleg tapes, a little cassette tape for the portal recorder he had, at the concerts. And he started networking with other people and began collecting bootleg tapes. But that's not important. What's important is I had started working on a story about animals that had been experimented on to make them intelligent. That was a post-apocalyptic, I didn't know the term that time, but right. essentially Earth had gone, We'd, humans had pushed Earth way too far, and they were dying out, and their plan was to make a giant computer that stored all of mankind's knowledge to give a kickstart to the few that survived figuring that they would be essentially driven back to the Stone Age. So they tried to breed stronger, more capable of surviving humans, kind of like, you know, humans were in the beginning. Right. Hunter-gatherer types. Right. And had essentially programmed into their DNA the necessary language to talk to this computer and at some point had hoped that There were terminals in kind of blockhouse buildings all over the planet. Mm -hmm. So wherever the humans survived and got strong enough and started to maybe farm and become more civilized, they could stumble over the terminal. They would see the keyword. It would activate the genetic code in the brain, and they could start learning about human history. Right. And Earth's history. That was the plan. And but... I, I called it the plan, <laughs> capital T, capital P. Right. Um, the key word was a word I made up, mm-hmm. high ferrocognizance, which was sort of the sort of hypercognitions, basically. Right. Um, they tested all this out on animal species that had managed to survive. I said that by that time, almost all the primates had been wiped off the planet, but there were areas where they had managed to keep certain carnivores alive, canine-based, feline-based, musteline based and those became the guinea pigs for for the project. Right. At the point where they began working on the human prototypes... Someone decided to, instead of killing off and purging all of the animals they had experimented on, since they were still completely functional in the environments that they were still existing in, they let them all go. And time passed, and unfortunately the last humans died out. But one day an animal looked up at this overgrown blockhouse, saw the keyword spoke it and they logged onto the
1: computer. I remember you telling me about your dream of having this movie scene where you've got an otter swimming through a river and it just looks like, you know, Disney's true life adventures or something. Because it's just it's it's physically just an otter. And then it crawls up onto the bank, walks up across some grass to a computer terminal and starts tapping on it. Yes. <laughs>
2: Actually, the computer was voice control, but yeah, that's the, that was the, the, the scene would have looked very much like a nature documentary right up until you have the reveal. Right. The main character was an otter that I called Aquasius, and he was kind of a little nerd otter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loved learning from the computer. Mm-hmm. He was very good at it. He was so good at it that the elders of the tribe who were all different species you mm-hmm. know wasn't just was just weasels there were there were cougars and 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 bobcats and wolves and foxes and like that. He had become kind of like the teacher's pet <laughs> and was actually teaching other young cubs and kits how to use the computer. And essentially i had it set up a lot of these were just you know this is a long time ago and i had i had all i had written up all these little outlines outlines and i had these tricks and things that although the computer had all of human history when you start using it what you're getting is all the basics right you're getting you know communication skills mathematics physics basic science chemistry things like this before you can actually unlock the real human history part. Right. So what Aquasius is doing is he's spending way many longer hours on a computer, and he eventually starts to uncover human history. Now, the animals had this theory that this computer, which is obviously not something... They built. ...that they built, and is obviously not something natural at least it's not a plant or a rock or anything, uh, must have been made by others like them who left it and went away somewhere. But Aquasius discovers the truth. Uh Uh-huh. Rather upsetting. And he figures, you know, before I reveal this to anyone else, I should find out as much as I can about the whole thing. You know, get the context. And he starts paying more and more attention to this and less and less to what he's supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And the elders go, well, you know, it was great helping out and everything but, you know, the elders are supposed to have the time on the terminals not a cub like you. Right. And eventually he kind of gets ousted Mm -hmm. from the group because he's just not doing what he's supposed to be doing anymore. He's gotten obsessed with something. And uh, that starts his quest, because essentially what happens is he decides to leave. He figures there is some information in the computer about its structure, and he figures out there are other terminals. Ah. So he'll find another terminal, and he'll be able to use it all the time, and no one can tell him what to do. So even though he's a little nerd otter, he is an otter, Mm -hmm. and he's getting pretty old. Uh, you know, he's at least a year old, so he's a survivor, he's a, he's a wild animal, he's a mustelid. he's not a pushover, he's strong. So he decides to go off to find another terminal. Luckily, the connections between the computers are pretty obvious, because there's this big stainless steel-like pipeline thing that's raised above the ground. I mean, the thing is self repairing from the inside out, essentially mm. so that's called the tie. He's able to follow the tie, so he starts following the tie. Mm-hmm. Um, the complication is is he has a little friend, little female friend who's also about a year old and kind of interested in him and she is she's martine, she's a martin. The thing is, I decided, okay. You end up to the point where the animals experimented on are more normally sized, and the species, the actual genetics, they're more phenotypical. So essentially, a fox-like animal and a wolf-like animal could produce viable offspring. Mm -hmm. The same thing with the felines, the same thing with the mustelines. Right. So... It is possible that these two could be mates, and this is kind of what the female is thinking. <laughs> and Aquasius is only thinking about the computer. Right. Gee, it sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Um, I don't know what you're talking about. I realized years later that essentially what I was doing is I had taken the middle part of Rudolph red Reindeer and kind of <laughs> lifted it, the
1: whole quest thing. Well, now you know what you have to do. You have to animate uh, Martine singing, There's always tomorrow. She
2: finds out he left and follows him. Um, There are some little extra things where at some point they're playing around and she won't go near the water and Aquasius tells her there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, any animal can swim. And he, of course, is an otter. He hangs around on the ground. Right. And she says, you really should climb a tree and see what it's like up there. (laughs) And he goes, you got to be kidding. But he figures out a way to do it because he's pretty damn strong. Mm -hmm. And she's right. It's amazing. And the fact that they now know kind of each other's shtick adds their survival capabilities. Right. So they actually survive this dangerous trip. Mm -hmm. She finds him eventually Although she gets very ill, and he has to, like, give up his quest and nurse her back to health. And she convinces him to go back. And on their way back, they find something that they never expected. The tie is damaged. Ooh. Even though, for some reason, things didn't grow around it. They didn't really know why that was. It was actually built into the whole program. Um... A very, very large old tree fell during a storm mm. on it and broke it Ooh. to the point where it couldn't repair itself. So Quasi says, "Oh well, our community is going to fall apart because it's surre- you know, the community's based on the terminal being there." So he convinces Martine to go on with the quest, and it eventually leads them to the actual center. The, the thing is called the Inaccuator. It's actually the big computer. Right. And Quasites is able to find everything he needs to know before the rest of his tribe and family wander in because when the terminals stopped working, they said, oh, well, something's wrong. We better go investigate. Right. But, yeah, that was my story. I wrote an outline. I wrote several chapters, and Gordon... Loved the stories. He yes. just loved them. So I would take him my incredibly indecipherable, hand-scrawled pages. <laughs> I mean, I had trouble reading them. <laughs> and he would type them up for me. That's cool. So that was kind of interesting. And, of course, that's that was my first furry story. I dabbled in other things, too. I had this crazy idea. In high school, I had a... a political science club that read political cartoons. Mhm. I've been a fan of Pogo. And Pogo was kind of political, mainly social but kind of political. Yes. But I love political cartoons and mm-hmm. we had this very progressive English teacher, Mrs. Abby. And I said I want to start a club to collect, read and analyze political cartoons. Cool. And she said, "Yeah, let's do that." So we call it the Philosophical Order of Governmental Observers, or POGO. Right. Got approved, and we had this club going. And there was one particular uh, cartoonist, I forget his name. He's still popular, or somebody's emulating him, who would draw these really nice full panel, single panel political cartoons. But you'd have these two little characters in the bottom corner commenting on his comment. I thought, that's really clever. It would be really cool to have characters that could pop into any other comic, Mm -hmm. strip or comic book, like all those were different dimensions. Right. And they could go between dimensions. So I created these little weasels with antenna. (laughs) (laughs) Is that predicting something, huh? I don't know. Um. And they were little, like little bowling pin weasels with, you know, penguin weasels, little, little, look like little, uh, little statues with antenna. And they lived in this null dimension, but they could go anywhere, including into a flatland type two dimensional world, mm-hmm. a comic or a book or a story or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was called Zeke and Xena. And essentially, I could. Put them in the frame of something and not actually have to draw them, because they had these little symbols, which represented them. Uh huh. It was kind of like uh, they're invisible, but you know they're there because you can see a little symbol floating there. Right. And what had what had happened was I had come up with this symbol, which is a little diamond with little triangles around it, kind of like a star. I really liked it. Don't know why. Just something about I liked, and I started putting that logo on everything. I was an audi- I was a budding audiophile, and I put that on everything I made or everything that my parents bought for me. I put that little logo on a little metal plate mm-hmm. using rub-on letters and lacquer. You know, because it- right. That became Zeke's emblem. Right, and then I sat around and designed a whole bunch of other little symbols that were similar with different shapes and I made one for Xena and one for the other characters in the comic. I never went anywhere with the comic though. It's like another one of those ideas you know you're in high school and you've got this brilliant idea but
1: then you discover it's work.
2: Probably not going to keep it going very long so
1: yeah there you go but it was furry. Yeah, absolutely. Now, <laughs> which leads me uh, also something you got into in the late 70s. Um, I should make, mention that uh, one day I was walking through my local bookstore and there was uh, some, I think at the time they were older issues of Analog Magazine, which was one of the most well-known science fiction uh, short story collection magazines ever. Yes. Hopefuls, if you hadn't heard of it. And this particular one on the cover had this rather adventurous Laura Croft-type lady posing there with a couple of giant otters. And I said, hello.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, interestingly enough, I was working in the high school library, Mm -hmm. and we had an analog subscription. Uh Uh-huh. And I happened to be sorting through one day, and I saw the exact same thing, and I went, really? I'm (laughs) going to read that? Yes. Uh, that was a story by James H. Schmidt. Mm-hmm. I think he's a British author.
1: I'm not certain. Uh,
2: he is more well-known for creating a character called Telsey. Yes. Who's a uh, psionic, has high psionic ability. He wrote a lot of science fiction where you have Telepathy. races that are long-range telepaths or long-range empaths or whatever. Yes and um, the universe uh, takes place in something called the Hub Federation. hmm And it just so happens that very recently they've started republishing all of the Hub Federation stories. Oh, cool. So you can look them up. The, the story that was in analog, serialized, it later became a book, was called the Tuvula, Mm-hmm. which referred to the fact that an alien race that was planning on invading the hub federation had set up a secret base on this very low population water world mm-hmm. to study humans right because apparently at the in the past when the col- when the hub was f- being founded and humans were run- colonizing space they'd run into these aliens and kind of defeated them which the aliens never expected right so now the aliens think, "Wow, from what we know about humans, they're not all that great, and they're certainly unorganized. So there must be something we are missing." And the Tuvala was their great idea was that there were secret superhumans that protected the human race. Mm-hmm. That was the reason the humans could defeat them. Right. And they wanted to find one of these, study it. Before they try to invade again. Right. So they're hiding on the planet underwater because they're amphibians. Right. Wow, amphibians again. Here we go. Kind of, they look kind of like uh, the creature in the Black Lagoon, basically. Right, right. So they're on an island that's essentially a big floating bunch of plants, mm-hmm. which is standard for this water world. Um, and on that island is a botanist who's doing research. And they capture him and begin interrogating him. But anyone will tell you if you do interrogation over a long period of time, the person you're interrogating starts to learn stuff about the interrogator. Right. And he figures the more he keeps them talking, the more he'll learn, and the less likely they are of just killing him out. Right. Right. So he begins to feed them stuff and see what their response is, and eventually he finds out about their Tuvala theory. Right. Now, he knows that he's on this place by himself. He can take care of himself, and he's not going to be missed for a long time. But eventually, his friend, who is um, kind of a police detective, independent law enforcement person, Mm -hmm. is going to bring him his supplies. Mm Mm-hmm. And he figures the best way to protect her is to hint that she is a Tuvala. <laughs> yeah, He manages to at least get one tape out for her to find. hmm You know, she knows these islands like the back of her hand better than most humans because she grew up on one. She's lived on them. She has with her a pair of... Otters that have been uplifted. In several
1: directions. Yeah. <laughs> they're about well, the size they're of small horses.
2: Actually, they're supposed to be regular giant otters, and the painter went crazy. Oh, okay, I see. They're, so they're... supposed to be, you know, your regular seven-foot-long, nose-to-tail, male, big otter,
1: giant otters. Okay, but the, yeah, if you see the cover on Analog, they're about the size of ponies. They're about 14 feet tall. Yeah. Um. So essentially, she's
2: there, and her two otters are tagging along they had tried to up evolve otters to be like a colonization thing and it the otters did whatever they felt like (laughs) otters do that you know didn't work but these two like her so they hang around with her right she finds the tape she gets shot down by the aliens and then disappears which she's really good at right Uh, finds the tape and basically her and the two otters begin picking off The aliens, Mm -hmm. one by one, and now the aliens are scared because apparently their theory was correct.
1: One of the Tuvala is there, and they're in deep doo doo.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But it's a great story, and it has big otters in it and other weird life forms
1: that are native to the planet. But one of the reasons why this is important to this story, children, is that there is a species of fish on this planet. Oh, yeah. Which are known as skilts. The skilt.
2: Essentially, uh, they haven't quite reached the bony fish level in evolution on this planet. They have birds and reptiles and primitive fish. Yes. And the natives call one particular food fish skilt. mm mm-hmm. yeah. S-K-I-L-T. So, after I had written or worked on my Heifer books, there would have been at least three books, I had been thinking about Star Trek, which I liked a yes. lot. Except there were no aliens on except people with makeup. Right. Which bugged me. So I thought, hey, what if you had a planet where the Mustelids evolved intelligence? Right. For whatever reason. Yes. And what if they became kind of the top of the food chain? Maybe they weren't the biggest, but they were the smartest on the planet. And they had tribes and such. And and I, you know, read other James Schmidt stories and thought it would be really cool if they were psionic, Mm -hmm. naturally psionic. Yes. And I'd read also about fish species that had
1: lateral lines,
2: lateral lines. Basically, they could sense position using an electrostatic field. Mm Mm-hmm. And I kind of combined them Mm -hmm. into this one critter. Uh, So it was a weasel-like, otter-like, Martin-like thing, bigger than they usually are on Earth, Mm -hmm. but not much bigger than a a human. Right. Um, And started thinking about them, and I thought, okay, I'm not really good at coming up with clever names. (laughs) Never have been. So I thought, okay, one of the kinds of animals that's Martin-like and Otter-like is a fisher. So I thought, okay, these are aliens. They're not from Earth. Okay, how about a skilter? hmm <laughs> Except if you're going to have a word skilt, which is a alien word. Uh-huh. Maybe to catch wouldn't be just, you wouldn't say fisher, but there'd be another word, and that's when I came up with T-A-I-R-E, so -hmm. you had skill tear.
1: A-I-R-E meaning hunter of. Right. And suddenly we get the alien weasels with antenna that briefly took over Southern California. (laughs) Yeah, the
2: telepathic uh,
1: electro-weasels, essentially— called hair. Well, you were very quick to point out to me when I met you that they're not really what we think of as psionic. They are just really, really, really empathic.
2: Yeah, essentially empathic in the way that if a brain produces an, electros- an electronic field, mm-hmm. they can sense it. And uh, I went beyond that because when they talk about psionics and science fiction, they generally throw the R squared law law out the window, mm-hmm. which is the idea that you know energy only dissipates so will dissipate so much over distance right. that eventually it'll be too small of a signal. Right. And the idea that you know telepathy is happening kind of almost in a in a warp world or a different dimension. Right. So the Skiltare can sense others of their kind. And although they can't just forcefully read a mind, they can look at surface thoughts. Right. Um, And they can tell what's alive around them Mm -hmm. that has a brain.
1: So um, Skiltare 101, children. Um, There are two divisions of Skiltare. One which is kind of Martin-like and one which is kind of otter-like.
2: Yeah, I figured basically they would, uh, just like the Mustelids have evolved on this planet, um, you've got this one basic intelligent critter, but depending on the environment, they specialize. Mm -hmm. So you have some that are good ground hunters, good tunnelers, some that are very good. They hunt in the canopy, you know, mm-hmm. you have you have planets that have incredible rainforests with hundred foot trees and and lots and lots of canopy to hunt through, and they become more arboreal because some weasels are, mm-hmm. and then you have the ones who become aquatic,
1: and they're uh, well. We, we mentioned they have antennas. Talk us about the antennas and how they're different.
2: Yeah, essentially, um, they have uh, mutated eye whiskers that become two antennas that are essentially made of little, almost triangular scales Mm -hmm. that grow over the the central eye whisker stalk. Right. So essentially there are muscles at the base that can change the shape of the antenna by pulling through the bunch of of scales which are flexible.
1: And one of the first things I noticed, of course, is that the... uh arboreal types wind up with antenna which are curly whereas the uh, uh, aquatics wind up with uh, antenna which are jointed in the middle.
2: They have like a kink in the middle usually one. The idea there is I thought okay if you're arboreal and you've got these things on your forehead you're going to want to get them out of the way. Right. So I thought curling up really tight would do that. Mm -hmm. In the case of aquatics they don't have quite so much to deal with for branches and leaves and things like that. So they have antenna that will kind of lean over and kind of hang down in front of their face, but don't have to get
1: really small. Right. So you can kind of do like water dowsing and kind of yeah,
2: <laughs> you know, and shape your field. What the antennas actually are for is they, they the animals have bioelectric mass. They have in their fat tissues that can generate electricity. It's pulse DC essentially. Mm -hmm. And the antennas, basically the animal puts out this electric field and the antennas are the receivers, Mm -hmm. which they can steer. Right. Just like an animal can steer its ears. Right. So this is how they can do motion sensing over a limited range, Mm -hmm. like maybe 30 yards or so. So they can stand very still And they can sense when things are moving, say if a breeze is blowing, they can sense when something's moving counter to the movement of everything else. Right. Uh, The other thing that the electronic or the electro uh, bioelectrics is used for is it is used because most mustelids have induced ovulation, which means you basically, when you're mating, you get the female excited enough that the egg gets shed. Right. Instead of going through all of the neck bite and and rough stuff, the antennas hook on each other and they do this kind of little pulse code thing (laughs) that uh, has the same procedure. People who've become fans of the skill have kind of taken this to extremes in some (laughs) cases.
1: We'll talk a little bit about the interesting way that Skiltare colonized space. Oh, you really want me to give it away,
2: huh? Oh. <laughs> uh, basically, since I had the Spoiler alert. The Skiltare being um, non... They're non-technological. Now, this doesn't mean they can't accept technology and they can probably build things. They just don't have to because they pretty much live the life of a you know, top carnivore Carnivore, in tribes, uh, they specialize. They have good communication with their other tribes and, them, and, you know, each other. And they can keep records by changing, by sharing information. Mm-hmm. So they don't really have to build cities and power plants and cars and all that kind of stuff, even though they could. Right. And probably in some cases do, because they're scattered all over the galaxy. And when humans encounter them, after they stop killing them for their pelts, yes, which are amazingly colorful, and discover that they are, in fact, sentient by human definition, yes, and start studying them, they began to try to try to find out why there are so many planets that have skill tear on them. Yes. And if you go digging in the dirt, you don't find fossil records going back very far. So obviously, someone has gone around and plopped Skiltare down on a bunch of planets at some point in the past. But they can't figure out who. There's no other evidence. Uh, What is actually going on (laughs) is that Skiltare are teleempathic, but they're also telekinetic to a certain extent. And this is something that developed through evolution. And, uh, essentially the Steel Terror aren't really that much aware of it. Mm -hmm. They're aware of the fact that at some point all of the tribes on a planet that are in communication with each other will all kind of come into season at the same time. Doesn't happen very often. Um. What happens at this point is, through this other dimension that psionic communication happens, Mm -hmm. is you get this pulse of information which radiates from the planet outward. While all the terror are having fun at the same time. Yeah. And it goes very far. Mm -hmm. What is the information in this wave will modify haploid genes, Mm-hmm. In other animals. Yes. And occasionally, it will change the, the genetics and the haploid cells to that of skill tear. So other animals which are similar physiology on other planets will mate, and they will have offspring, and the offspring will be, that one time, skill tear, actual skill tear. And the skill tear will find each other, and form a,
1: a tribe, and there you go. Suddenly you have a uh, Skiltere colony, colony on a place that they never were before. Yeah, that is giving stuff away. So it's, it's always one of the, the fascinating things to me about the, the whole story was that that, that aspect. That's a, a wonderfully well thought out. Another thing I loved, you uh, told me one time that uh, Skiltere don't have names as we think of them. Uh, a a skill tier will walk up and say hi I'm and give you this blast of information which is like their entire life experience Uh, well actually
2: first you get kind of a summary and then if you had interest you give more information right but essentially you can make a little template for everybody it's kind of like everybody has a Facebook page it's like all the skill tiers store all the Facebook pages they've been given by the other skill tear, right. and that's who they are. But, of course, if there are other creatures around, like humans, they'll pick names, right? or they'll let the humans name them and go, okay, yeah, I'm that. That's who I am.
1: Yeah, other other uh, stories I've read places where uh, you have an a, an uplifted animal species or some type of alien, and they again, they don't have names. Their name is a splat of pheromones yeah, or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's their particular unique scent. Is is their
2: name. Is their name, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Or, or, you know, some sort of semaphore thing with... uh with their multiple digits, or exactly, you know, <laughs> exactly. or yeah, or a smell, or, or or a noise, or sound, or something, or a bunch of sounds,
1: exactly. But, so, yeah, join me in my uh, campaign, folks, to uh, get Mark Merlino to finish writing his, uh, his hypercognizance and uh, skill tear novels and <laughs> no, uh, get yeah. them out there. I've only been bugging him about them for about 30 years, so uh, they, they should be coming along. Now.
2: The skill tear novel uh, was about a human who finds a a skilled hare on a world that's being poached and raises it and eventually he's the one who discovers the, the trick right, that the skilled hare are doing that they aren't even aware of right. so that's why it's a spoiler because if you're reading the book you wouldn't know about it until you got to what volume 4 or something <laughs> um,
1: well they'll enjoy the stories up to that point and uh, they'll have forgotten about it by that point yeah skilled Tear theta
2: I named my first skill Theta because theta was the Greek letter that was adopted by the ecology movement right. And when I first created her, I had her like an, in like a spaceship looking over the earth, kind of watching studying what was being done to the planet by the humans. Mm-hmm. It made her kind of an ecological symbol before I started thinking about what her story would be.
1: Hello once again, all you netcasters out there. This is Rod O'Reilly with two old furry fans. It turns out that Mark and I managed to talk about quite a few things for quite a while with this session, as we moved our way through the latter part of the 70s. So we decided that we're going to split up this episode into two bite-sized parts for you as it were. So, uh, <laughs> drive you less crazy and us as well. So, we're going to roll things off right now and say good day and thank you very much for joining us for this month and we will be back very soon with part 2 of our discussion of the latter part of the 70s as we move towards when we actually met one another. So, once again from two old furry fans in Garden Grove, California, TTFN. Yeah, clap your hands and stomp your feet and try to keep right with them. One sure thing the bear band's got is real old country, real old.